Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Justin, and we're back with another episode of Survival of the Artist. And we got a milestone because today's episode 10. So I had to bring out I had to bring out the big guns for episode 10. Some of you might know him as a producer named Rock Domes from the group Sackcloth Fashion, who trailblazed Christian hip hop in the late 90s, early 2000s. Some of you might know him as the head honcho of Syntax Records or Syntax Creative. I am talking about Tim Trudell. What's up, man? Wow. That sounded pretty good. That's a good intro. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I really focused. And to, to keep it 100, Tim and I have been talking for like 11 minutes prior to this. And I really didn't think I'd be able to give a good intro, and that was one of my best ever. So I, I did that for you. Great. Now they're gonna know this chemistry was was like created and not like natural. Let let's let's keep it more 100. Tim Tim and I have known each other for a while, so it's it's gonna be this is gonna be a fun one. We we can't we can't there's no smoke and mirrors here. We we just go we go right at it. He's he's speechless. <laughs> I just wanted to leave an awkward pause to kind of bring it back like you know, like, oh well okay. Maybe that maybe Justin's lying, I'm not sure now. <laughs> who who is this guy? He's making all this up. Alright, so I I gave a brief intro, so for everybody out there who maybe they don't know you or maybe they need to be reminded of of the goat in in your in your life how who are you what do you do and what is your claim to fame <laughs> okay um so that's a good question so basically i am somebody who works really really hard and I've been doing that for a really long time and it's led to a lot of different things. So it wasn't like I woke up one day and said, I want to have a record label or I want to have a distribution company or I want to be in a group. Like none of those things. It's just, I love working really hard and that's like the main deal. I love making things. I like making things with my hands. I like making things with my mind. And so, yeah. Yeah. Just working really hard has led to a lot of different things. Sorry, that didn't help. <laughs> no, that that's that's fine. Well, what what would you actually then say is your claim to fame, though? Oh gosh. Well, I would say my my real claim to fames are um, none because I'm behind the scenes in almost every amazing thing that. I get to be involved in where my name's not attached to it and people don't even know that um, I had anything to do with it. So like the biggest and craziest stuff I've ever done, I won't even get credit for. So, so from that end, um, stuff that I'm actually, my name is on or I'm attached to is the little stuff. Like it's the smallest stuff I've ever done. So like you mentioned it in the beginning. So like making beats for Christian hip hop, and then being in a group, um, like that's legitimately the smallest stuff I've ever done. So I love Christian hip hop and it's 
fantastic. I'm just saying those are really like the beginning of it all and not much, you know, we already know, like, I mean, maybe it's better now, but back then nobody was living off of getting rich or winning any major awards from doing it. So we were just having a lot of fun. Hey, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. So, I mean, how long did it take you to get where you are at now? And I know that's that's kind of a relative question, but I feel like you're somebody who you're never comfortable with exactly where you're at. Like you're always striving to do the next thing. But from a like a living standpoint, a personal standpoint with your family and your business, you're at a comfortable spot where you could say like, you know, what you've done up until this point is successful. So how long did it take you to get to where you're at? Uh, about 15 minutes. My, my house isn't very far from here. <laughs> no, I expected I, this. So, I expected this this nonsense. <laughs> I, I can't. I'm a, I'm a. I have four kids, so like dad jokes are they're they're like maximum right now. So sorry. Um. So so yeah, I would say. Yeah. Well. So I I. I was in high school and I was working really, really hard already. I was making beats, selling them and doing that. And so I graduated in 96. So right out of high school, I think 97 is when we started getting really serious, um, making records and, and, uh, you know, doing shows and stuff. So, I mean, really I could say since then, since 97 is sort of the year that we go with, um, like, as far as the beginning point of everything that I, that I'm doing. So I would say it took that long to get to today. And then, right. like you said, I'm never really comfortable. That's a true statement. Um, I, well, I would call that, that's just like entrepreneur, like the entrepreneur's itch, right? Yeah, yeah. So like the, the, basic, the basic premise is um, I like to build things. I love it. And then once it's built you get like bored, right? Um, and that's, you know, on the one hand, you could consider that sin because it's like, from a stewardship standpoint, it's like, hey, this is, you know, this is pretty cool. And what's your problem? Things are going well. You should be happy. And absolutely, I 100% agree with that um, in theory and, and the philosophy of that. I absolutely agree with that. But the problem is that when you're wired the way that I'm wired, you get bored, even though you know that it's wrong and you're supposed to be thankful, but it can be used for good because you can keep building things. And that's just, I love, like, I love the struggle. I love waking up in the morning and not knowing if uh, I'm going to have enough money to cover all the things that I need for that day. Like for some people that makes them vomit, it scares them. Uh, But actually that's my, that's my sweet spot. I like to be where, I have to work really hard in order to survive. Oh, that's that's awesome. Yeah, and that that entro, entrepreneurial I I can never say it is uh, that spirit is like I know it's it's such like a driving force where it's like you you kind of can't control yourself. You just have to you have to do it. You just have to always be like always be closing. Always be you know, doing something or creative something kind of, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's like an artist who just has the itch to make music. It's always going to have that itch. Yeah. And I I think that it's not that entrepreneurs have 
like like anything better than anyone else in the sense of we're all looking at and seeing the exact same problems, right? So like everyone looks around and says, hey, there's nobody that is, um, you know, booking artists in Christian hip hop. Like everyone looks around, sees that and goes, hey, there's nothing here. But the entrepreneur is the one that says, okay, I'm going to do something about it. Whereas maybe right. everyone else goes, well, I don't know what to do or, or that stresses me out. That seems like too much work, blah, blah, blah. So the entrepreneur is, that's the only difference. It's not like there's, you know, extra special skill set um, necessarily or, you know, bigger, better brain. It's none of those things. It's just, it's the person that's willing to jump off the ledge. Right, right. And and I, I'm going to skip a question and actually spoke uh, speak on what you just said, like jumping off that ledge. My question is going to be like being an entrepreneur is hard and scary in a lot of ways. So what sort of, I guess, advice or or I guess anything that you could say to someone who is kind of afraid to take that next step in business or in life to try to create something. Yeah. I mean, this isn't, you either have it or you don't. Um, I think a lot of people read books, go to conferences and they want to somehow like learn how to do that kind of stuff. And, and I just don't think there's a way to do that necessarily. I think it's like genetic. You're either insane or you're not insane. <laughs> and then on top of that, um, on top of that, I would say the only way to get good at it is to do it. It's like you have to take that first jump and then every future jump is obviously a little bit easier. And this is so cliche and so corny, but you really do have to be willing to fail. Um, and I think that that fear of failure might be the main reason why most people don't jump off the ledge. Right. Um, they, they have to know, they have to have it all laid out and organized and know what's on the other side. And that's impossible. And since I know that's impossible, I know that it's, you know, it's, why would I be shooting for that? Let's just go and see what happens. Um, so yeah, honestly, it's, you just have to do it. And I think it gets harder and harder to do it the further down the line you get, like, you know, if you get married and have kids and all that, like that's makes it harder. So I think the one bonus I had going for myself was, you know, whether I was selling Mexican candy to the people at my school or, you know, beats to the high schoolers, uh, whatever I, like, I just was already doing stuff like that. Yeah. And so, you know, knocking on neighbor's doors, mowing lawns, doing whatever I needed to do to get money and then use that money to buy gear and then use the gear to make things that I would ultimately sell to people and so on. So I think it's just, you know, it was, if anything, it was easier that I was doing it all along, but I, I would like to think, um, that I'd be willing to do that. I mean, the, the real major push for me was we got pregnant the first time and that was 2005. Um, and it was like, like something in my head just switched and I was like, well, this is really it. So either I need to just really go all the way in or, yeah, or yeah. not. I need to go find something. And so I, I literally created a, um, like some charts and I did a presentation to my wife. Like literally <laughs> like I, I had like a PowerPoint presentation for my wife and I said, here's the pros and cons of, uh, I gave her three different 
three different scenarios because at that time I had a job, a really, really cushy job working for the government, um, making great money, had great benefits, uh, you know, pension, like everything was beautiful and set. We had great medical and, and it's like, oh, you're pregnant. We're going to really need that medical. So then I'm presenting to her. So here's my idea. One is I stay at that job and I just continue to advance there forever. Um, and that's that. That's her life. Or I could, you know, work, continue to work there, but be trying to build this thing on the side so that it gets to a level where I can eventually support all of us off of it. Yeah. And the third option was quit the job, get rid of all the benefits, and just go for it all the way. And, of course, that's what I wanted to do. Um, but I didn't want to freak her out, so I presented it to her those three different scenarios and then gave her all the different options. And my wife's not real big on risk or um, change or a lot of different things, but for some reason, like that one time, she was like, yeah, I think we should do it. You should quit your job and you should just go for it. And nice. again, I don't know if she was just, if she had pregnant brain or what was going on, because that would have, that's just not a normal, she's not into that, but she she was cool, so I went for it and actually took a loan against my house to start the business um, and lived off of that money for a little while, which is totally opposite of what all financial advisors would tell you to do <laughs> and and all that. But I just, I needed something to, to kick it off. Um, I don't have, you know, we have no investors ever. And, you know, so yeah, it was just, that was it. So that that was... That my point in that is is I had a lot to lose and and I was willing willing to lose it. Now, I, I mean that's that's a phenomenal story. So ultimately, that that business you started was Syntax Creative, right? Yeah, I mean in two thousand five we were still going pretty hard with Syntax Records. Okay, but we were we were already branching out, and and that was because um, how it started was Syntax Records was going well. Um, it, it, in terms of Christian record or Christian hip hop record label, uh, which is just again, if you want to, <laughs> at least back then, if you want to start a business that's doomed to fail, I mean that's just it right there. Um, there's just no money in it. it. It costs a lot of money to run and to operate, and then um, there's not really any money coming in, at least to the record labels. Um, I know that's anyways. So so that was it. But then. So we're working with like an extremely niche style of music, but other other labels that were working in more, you know, pop or more profitable genres were were noticing us and noticing our work, and they started contacting us and asking if they could hire us out as consultants or, you know, can we just pay you and you guys do our branding and can you, you know, that kind of a thing. So that's really when that started to kick in. Like, okay, like. Christian hip hop is is my my passion. I love it, and I want to I want it to be big and amazing. Um, but if I'm honest, every dollar I spend, like I nothing comes in off of that. So if I can profit from other ways and other styles and other things, yeah. but not have my name attached to it, and then use that money to invest back into Christian hip hop, that's pretty sweet. So that's what I did for quite a while. So so Syntax Creative is really like, ultimately, it's a it's a full-on distribution and marketing company at this point. But back then, it was like my side thing, my side hustle to keep the yeah. label going. And then ultimately, it became 
a real thing, and Syntax Records became the side hustle. Yeah, and I mean, it goes it goes to show you, it's it's kind of I always tell people who like music is my number one thing to do. I was like, well, you need to make sure you have a backup plan. So in this scenario for you, your your backup plan was actually, you know, funding the number one plan, and then they sw- they swapped places pretty much. Yeah, and, and honestly, like, without Syntax Records and without the being able to sort of flex, flex our, you know, marketing muscles and, and branding and all those different ideas and create strategies and stuff for releases, without being able to do that with something that I was passionate about, I would have never had the opportunity to do it for music that I'm less passionate about. So I can kind of do it. You know, I used to have to like the album to do a good job yeah. for it. And, and nowadays it's just not the case at all. Like, you know, we're doing, I mean, there's a lot of music that we work with that I do like, cause we work with every style. We have 130 record labels that we're doing this for now. Um, so that covers a wide array, a wide array of music. But yeah, I don't have to love the record to do a good job for it. And I think that I wouldn't have been able to start out that way because uh, it's just to, to, do, to, to, to do what we were doing, we had to be passionate about it. And, um, and I think that's just part of the, the, the curve of growing something anyways. Like any startup, I mean, you're not going to get out of bed if uh, your, your new startup or your new company that you launched is is a product or service that you weren't passionate about right right 100 percent. and and being being in music for over 20 years or the industry for over 20 years i'm just curious as to what was the thing that sparked this desire that was just like i want to be like at first it was like i want to be a producer and then from producer went to like i want to be the guy who kind of runs things like what were those I yeah. guess those those key moments or those inspirations that that hit you. Sure. Well, well, first and foremost, I didn't I didn't start off thinking I want to be a producer. I was just making music because I loved making things, um, and I happened to know how to make music. And so um, I just, you know, it started from from just genuinely sitting down, having gear, and enjoying it, and and. Um, and making what I could, like my first real setup, well, not not real, my first setup of making music I, I created when I was 12. Like I had um, a, a a computer that I built out of spare parts. It was a 286. Wow. And, um, and what it was is, you know, I think at that time everyone was either on a 386 or a 486. And so I was able to get like a 286 motherboard from this guy and some RAM from that guy and you know, like buy this, trade that. And then I built this, this nasty homemade computer and was making, I was, it was modules, uh, is what it was called back then. So I would do module editing where you could sample and then use those samples and sequence them out and stuff in the module editor. And so that was all eight bit, meaning the sound quality wasn't good enough for a studio or good enough to, put out albums, at least at that time. Now people put out 8-bit ironically and make money off of it. But, <laughs> but back then it would have been like, 
it would have been like, no, you can't, you know, you can't go to, into a studio with this, but it you were ahead of your time. Get it all out of my system. Yeah. I was learning how to sequence. I was learning how to compose and do all these things on, on stuff without having to spend a lot of money. So that by the time I actually went into a real studio, cause this is, cause I used to see this a lot too. People would save up all their money for uh, studio time. And then they'd go into the studio with nothing, like just their checkbook and the, themselves. And they'd walk in and then they'd be like, all right, now what? But it's like, yeah, you booked the studio, but you don't know how to use any of the gear. You have no songs written. Like you have no pre-production. And so you're just throwing away money while the guy that owns the studio is just laughing at you. <laughs> um, so, so I think having it, because, you know, there was no inbox and, you know, $300 and you're actually kind of, at least auditioning tracks and writing songs at home before you enter a real studio. Yeah. There was none of that. So, um, anyways, yeah, I, I just, I was making music. We, we got a deal pretty early on. Um, I think 1998 was when we signed a deal with rescue records, uh, which is POD, Tone, Dogwood, um, you know, NIV, like a bunch of uh -huh. punk and, uh, Unity Clan, Frosty, they had rap, punk, and, and all kinds of other stuff. And so we signed like this super sweet deal where we owned our master still, and they would distribute it into the stores. And at that time, that was like completely unheard of. Like, you know, yeah, you know yeah. you've read all, I assume you've read or heard a lot of stories like where you basically give away everything, all your, your work and all that. So we, we were able to do that. And um, I think... You, you know, your your question was about the transition. And so for me, what, what kept happening was I was always unhappy with how other people handled our music. I hated their, you know, marketing strategies or, or just any of their ideas. The, the advertisements, I would look at these and I would, I would just be like, this is so corny. This isn't us. And so for a lot of the other groups at the time, I think they just didn't care because they were kind of more focused inward and they were thinking uh -huh. about their own band and just just being excited that their album cover was on any ad whatsoever but i was like i hated i just always hated how we were being presented to the world and and you know like it just i wanted to you know do something about that so i kept trying to have those conversations i would kept yeah know, showing yeah. up to the meetings and and so i ended up meeting with executives all the time and just thinking gosh these guys really don't know what they're doing they don't know what they're talking about on the one hand, but then on the other hand, I was learning a lot of like classic things that are just good in business. Um, and so I just ended up going, man, I actually, you know, business is sort of looked down upon like it's a, a boring and not creative job. But the more that I stepped into it, I was like, what the heck? Business is just as creative as making a song right. or any of these other things I'm doing with my hands. But but on the other hand, like I have way more control over what happens with it when I'm done. And so I can work just as hard and just as creative and actually make money if I'm over on the business side. Whereas if I'm on the music side all the way, I work really hard and then who knows what happens after that, you know, right, maybe right. a little money comes in, but it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't, it's, the, the return on investment is just terrible. So that was, yeah, I just kind of, shifted i just moved like i had one pinky toe in and then i had okay all the toes and then the whole foot and then eventually i just like jumped all the way in i'm like this is what i want to do with my life i love this i love business i love music and music business together is like a dream come true 
later. Didn't know it was a dream until I was all the way in. Yeah, and that I mean, I feel like that's that's kind of where where I'm at too, where I've always been in bands and always made music and then you know, always waiting to quote unquote make it or do something. So I'm like, oh well, in the meantime, you know, I'll just write about music right. and and you know, be around artists and talk to artists until I make it. Well, you know, I'm about to be 30. I didn't make it yet, but I'm doing pretty good <laughs> as as a music journalist. So I feel like yeah. I feel like it's it's sort of that natural progression, like the expectations and reality. Like everyone has the expectation yeah. of being you know, the biggest artist in the world. The reality is that's, that's happens very, very few and far in between, but you could take that energy, that creative energy that you do making music and do that on the business end and it'd be just as cool, just as fun. Um, and and you get to live vicariously through other people. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, and, and making music is, uh, making it in music is so overrated anyways. It, right. It's so temp- temporary, and and the way that it looks maybe to the listeners versus how it really is behind the scenes, it's just, it's all fraud, man. <laughs> like, you know, the, the rapper in his Lamborghini in the music video, and then as soon as the the uh, the music video is wrapped, then he that car goes back to the person who owns it and all the jewelry and all his car uh, yep, clothes yep, go back yep. to the person who owns that. And then he goes back home and uh, does his job at, you know, landscaping or whatever he's doing <laughs> uh, for, for waiting it for, you know, to take off. And it's like, it's just, it's, it's all a joke. Um, so, I mean, again, there's, there's obviously, there are scenarios where it may have worked, but, but again, those are so few and far between that at that point, I think people would have a better chance at winning the lottery than making it in music. When you look at the chances, first of all, the amount of deals that are even available, major label deals, the amount of people that make music, and you just start doing the math on that, and you realize, gosh, this isn't this isn't looking good. Yeah. Um, but but if you are developing out skills like you know, such as yourself, and you're writing and interviewing and making yourself um, valuable, and people needing you, then then you can continue to work on music for the fun of it, which is the best way to do it anyways. Mm-hmm. And if it ever turns into something, that's just a bonus. But, right. but then no you don't pressure. have to rely on it. Right, because if, if you make music in that direction anyways, then your music's probably not nearly as good as it could be if you were just going into the studio and having fun. Um, you know, because even for us, and part of our problem as a label was we were we were making music that we liked and we weren't making music that was um, like, this is what we need to make right now to sell some records. Like we, we never did it that way. And that's probably why we didn't become, you know, huge and rich and all that, because we, we just never, if, if, you know, if a certain sound is what was popping at the time, yeah. if we didn't like that sound, we didn't make it. So it didn't matter to us. Um, and we just happened to have a whole batch of people who all thought and felt that way and um, and worked that way for the most part. So it was it was a good time. So um, how? But nobody made money. <laughs> <laughs> nobody made money. So, I mean, at at sackcloth fashions peak, like how how big were you guys? There were seven of us. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> so. 
you know, it honestly, it's that stuff's tough to tell. Um, I mean, there were different milestones, obviously, that you could point to. Um, and so, I mean, we would show up in a city that we were, that we were, excuse me, sorry, my mic fell. Um, we would show up in a city that we were booked for and there would be 4,000 people there. And, um, and we would just think, dang, that's pretty sweet. And then people would sing along with you. And that was pretty sweet, but it's because back then there wasn't charts necessarily. I mean, there was billboard and all that still, but, but the Christian market sales were kind of segmented out of all of that. And so, you know, we know that we sold about 40,000 units, which nowadays Mm -hmm. is like, may as well be platinum. Um, but back then, 40,000 wasn't very much. You had gospel gangsters, you know, breaking 100,000, um, and T-Bone probably similarly doing that. Maybe not until Flickr, but, but yeah, I mean, it, at that time, we were selling a decent amount of records for an independent, and we were touring the, the nation in a van and being gone for two or three months at a time doing nonstop shows. So, I would say in terms of Christian hip hop, this, that would probably be the peak of success. And right. I would say to this day, there's still not a lot of people that are even doing that, like where they're touring for a whole two or three months. I mean, you might have like a handful of people doing that tops. Um, but even like the so-called big names are really just doing fly dates. Um, there just really isn't much of a circuit. Uh, we made a circuit. We just made it up. We're like, you know, I would, and that was part of the business. What made me go into business as well is I just would pick up the phone and, and you have to be willing to get hung up on. You have to be willing to get yelled at. So I would pick up a phone, you know, call a random church in the city and go, you know, hi, my name's Tim. I, I work with Sackcloth Fashion. We're going to be passing through. Um, we're a Christian hip hop band and oops, the phone hung up you know, <laughs> or whatever. Or, or they would be like, you know, Christian hip hop band. What do you mean? You know, so it was either curious or anger or whatever. And then maybe one out of those 30 calls, we might actually get someone who was like, well, you can come to our church, but, you know, we don't have any money. And I'd be like, all right, well, cool, because we have a place to set up. We'll sell some merch and we'll fill up the gas tank. You know, again, we're talking about in between like the bigger shows where you're just right right you're just you, you know if, if it's a 12 hour drive then at six hours you try to find something in between to cover the cost to get to the next one and so on so yeah just being willing to to stick your neck out there it's the same kind of it's like a smaller version of jumping off the cliff <laughs> and i just think there's to this day there's just not a lot of people that are willing to do that um so so yeah i, I mean there was we had Several songs in major motion pictures. Um, like we have a, the whole opening sequence to Prince and Me Too is one of our songs. Um, the Michael Douglas movie has four of our songs in it. Wow. Um, it's so, so like things were going really well. But again, it was just like we were all still, you know, we, we all still had regular jobs and, and we're not going to be able to support entire families off of it for the long term so so i don't know if you measure it by accolades or by your one sheet like it was going really well but if you look at it from like a real life standpoint it was never gonna sustain right and what i know you you were nominated for a grammy and and dove awards was that for your work in sackcloth fashion 
So, so for me, it was production work on other people's stuff. Um, cause Sackcloth never got nominated for anything. Okay. And, and, and now on the one hand, it's like, oh, you know, I hear all these people always go, man, Dove Awards isn't real, blah, blah, blah. But here's the thing. Back when we were making music, we didn't even know how any of it worked. And the reality is we could have, we could have absolutely got nominations if we would have known how that all works. And really it's very simple. You just have to be a member of the organization that does the awards. And then you have to fill out, um, your record has to drop in a certain time frame, and then you have to fill out the nomination form. Yeah. And now that we're a distributor and we're dropping like five records a week, it's like, we see it all the time. Like we, we have a lot of records that are winning Grammys or being nominated for Grammys, which sounds amazing, right? Like, like most people hear that and they just think that's so far away or so hard. And it's really not. It's literally just, if, if you know how to use a pencil and, <laughs> uh, and you can lick an envelope, like you can get nominated. You hear that everybody? All the, all the young artists listening, skip, skip the music classes and, and learn how to fill out forms <laughs> and, put, yeah, honestly, and put the stamps like, and write addresses. People, when I learn or when I hear people complain about not being nominated, I just, you know, I ask a couple of questions like, Oh, were you a member of the RIAA or, Oh, were you a member of gospel music association? Oh, you weren't. Oh, well then you can't be nominated. You know, like, like just little things like that, that again, just a little bit of research. And look, I wasn't even doing it. We got really close to being nominated for a Dove award as Sackcloth. Uh, we had a music video that, we, I mean, we had songs that would hit number one on the Pure Rock Report, which was all that the Christian side had at the time. Um, I think it got dissolved and or bought by maybe Billboard or someone else at this point. But but we had number one songs. We had a song that was 18 for the whole year, and then we had a video that was you know stayed in the top 30 for the whole year, was getting played on all the Christian stations. Mm-hmm. And um, so that one, because that one was on rescue records. So our actual, our debut project, uh, we later found out cause we had a friend that worked at the label that GMA had reached out to the label and had asked for, uh, submissions on that title because the title was making noise and they wanted to, they wanted it in for the, the running. So all the way in 99, it would have been, um, you know, like in 99, there was potential for an actual album, that is rap to be nominated for a rap dove award. And, and so a lot of people go, Oh, the doves, they never even, you know, they, they give crap about Carmen or all that other stuff. And again, <laughs> that Carmen was, that was, that was a little too far, but if that's all of the people that submitted for the year, I mean, what are you going to do? It's not Carmen's fault. <laughs> Poor guy. It's like, you know, he's, he's doing his best to rap on a record and no one else is submitting. I mean, what do you want? Um, so yeah, it really falls on the shoulders of the artists themselves or the labels themselves, um, more than GMA. GMA is not like scouring the planet and trying to find what's best out there. They're right. a trade organization. So, I mean, you know, I think that's what people assume they are doing or that they should do. And, and maybe there's some truth to that, that they should do it to a degree, but they're just a trade organization that's reacting to the, the industry and how the industry is submitting and that more than the actual, you know, I guess what's happening at the street level. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a lot of good insight there because I would, I would venture to guess that like 90% of people don't know that. Um, and now, you know, that provides them sort of 
with like, oh, so this is why it's the same people over and over or, you know, people right. who shouldn't even be there. Um, well, and, and it's not even the artist. It's it's the, that artist just happens to be tied to a label who knows right, the game, right. who plays the game. Right. And it's all political because, you know, the, the three majors um, obviously have block voting and things going on just from the, the nature of their size and the amount. Because here's the thing, in case it's not clear, you have to pay money to GMA to be a member. And if you're a company, you have to pay money to them representative of how much income you're bringing in. So if you're capital Christian and you're giving a portion of your proceeds for the year, you can imagine how much, like the folks that work at GMA and the, the, the whole thing exists because, you know, really of like these one, two or three companies. And so the majority of the awards are going to go right back out to those people. Now, if people don't like that, I understand the sentiment, but that's what it is. So my thing is, if you don't like that, start your own awards that are based on something that you think has more integrity. But until then, quit complaining about another organization yeah, because it's all it public knowledge on how it how it's done. Right. And, uh, okay, so moving moving on from that, what would you say... So this is a series of two questions. So here's the first part. What would you say is the biggest success in your career thus far? If you just had to think of like a moment. Well, (laughs) okay, I can give you, I can give you some of those milestones, but, but I will say legitimately that I think my biggest success is that I'm still doing it because everyone that I came up with is now, you know, real estate agents or, um, you know, working at a drugstore, whatever, like everyone is out. Like there's not one person really that I can look back on and be like, Oh, they're legitimately still doing this. Um, so that's my, like, that's what excites me is that, I mean, I was 17 years old when I was doing that deal with Diamante. I wasn't even old enough to sign a contract in California. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had to have like a legal guardian sign in order for me to get into a deal with, with them. And so for me, um, the fact that at 17 years old, all of those people that were, yeah, I'm, I'm going to turn 40 this year, um, 39 right now. So all the people that were 39 years old when I was 17, they're all out, they're all out, right. Yeah. Or, or people that were in their twenties and they were climbing the ladder they're all out. So to me, like the fact that, um, that we exist, the fact that I wake up and I go to a music business job in the morning is really exciting to me. And I, and I honestly awesome. think that most of the people that follow me on the internet or whatever, and are following me based on syntax records or old things, I don't even think they know that they probably think I have like a job, you know, at McDonald's or something. Um, <laughs> I don't even think people realize that I actually work in the music business. Um, and so that said, some of the coolest things that have happened is, is, uh, for us was Tamala Mann is a, is a gospel recording artist mm-hmm. and she went, uh, platinum in our system. So my little company that wow. has direct deals with, you know, Amazon, Google, Spotify and all that, my tiny little company facilitated a digital only single making its way all the way to platinum. And then, of course, you know, 
from their Grammy nominations and all that as well. That's amazing. And so if I would have known when I was 17 that I would have a company in the future that could actually facilitate in 2016, I think is when that went down, um, facilitate a company that, or facilitate projects to go to that level. Like I would have been like, no, nah, that's, that's insanity. There's no way <laughs> I have no investors. I have no, like, I don't have the connections. I'm not politically part of the, the right network. And so that's a good one for us that we always look to. Um, we had, um, we had a band perform on this tonight show. That was pretty cool that we, that we distribute. And again, like any, any given award season where we have usually a handful of titles being nominated for stellars, doves and Grammys and, and whatever else you can get out there. Um, so it, it, things are going really well. We drop about five records a week, um, on average, so about 20 albums a month and again, 130 labels. And, and I love it. I love our clients. We have the best time. Like I'm actually friends with our clients so much that, like, even if I am done with Syntax one day, I'm going to hang out with all these same people. Like, we're going to go out to eat and we're, we're going to have a good time, whether cool. we're making money together or not. Yeah. At uh, least I feel that way. I hope they do, too. <laughs> I, guess, I guess you'll find out. Um, so, yeah. what, what would you say is your biggest failure or regret? <laughs> if, if any. Oh, man. But from oh, that response, well, I feel yeah. like you have a few. I have, I have, I mean, countless, countless failures. Give me the, the, the um, biggest have, one that haunts you. I have locked arms. I've locked arms with people many times. Um, mostly in the beginning, um, I would lock arms with people that I should not have locked arms with. Um, because in the beginning, I wasn't really thinking about character or things like that. Like if I met someone, we shook hands and they said, I'm a Christian and here's what I want to do. As long as, you know, the skill was there and they said that with their mouth and I just believed them. I didn't really have like a litmus test for who was serious or not serious. Yeah. And I think just as I've developed spiritually on my own and, and, and built more of a theological backbone, I think I'm better at discerning whether someone's truly a believer or, or what kind of character they're going to have and that kind of thing. So yeah. I, and, and I would say that that specifically because I have so much love and passion for Christian hip hop, um, I regularly make that mistake in Christian hip hop. Christian hip hop is, for whatever reason, um, we work with all styles. We do the same kind of contracts with all different types of people. We do the same kind of business with all different types of people. But for whatever reason, Christian hip hop continually is the genre that breaks contract, um, does dirty things. And I, I don't know, man, like it drives me nuts because because the, the platform, to me, still has potentially the biggest um, possible reach for, for if it's truly, you know, doing this for ministry. Um, and again, I'm not saying that that doesn't mean money or other things wouldn't be involved. But yeah. if, if it's truly, I make this music because I want to impact culture, I want to change lives, I want to draw people to Christ, um, or I want the, the Holy Spirit to use me to draw people to Christ, um, then... I still think this music has the, the best potential for that. Not only in the fact that, you know, for the last three, three decades, hip hop is still like at the top, um, you know, obviously fighting with country and rock, but it's still at the top. It's impacted global culture, uh, whether it's a McDonald's commercial. That's the second time I've mentioned McDonald's. It's like, they should pay us for that. 
Um, <laughs> but it, whether it's a McDonald's commercial about a hamburger or if I'm in Russia and I'm meeting like youth, like 14 year olds, 20 year olds, whatever, and they're all like dressing like they love hip hop and rapping and beatboxing and breakdancing, you know, in again, in Russia, in Japan, wherever you're at, like it's global culture and you just don't see that with other styles of music. You know, I, again, there's people all over the world that like rock and roll, of course, um, and other styles, but for whatever reason, hip hop is like, it's like mainstream global culture at this point. So I, I just think that alone is like, man, this, this is the platform. Um, but that said, if that, if that ever changes, um, then hopefully you won't have everyone hanging on to that. And, and, and like, that's the only way they know how to so-called minister. If, if, yeah. if, you know, if you can't do it, if you can't do it without the music, you probably shouldn't be doing it with the music anyways. I feel you. I feel you. All right. So what, in, in your mind, what do you have next to accomplish? You've done a lot. So what's, what's next? What do you, what do you feel like is, is missing on the, the LinkedIn profile? <laughs> um, that's, that's funny. So what's missing on the LinkedIn profile right now and, and legitimately is an education. I, um, <laughs> I, I, I started, I started doing this so early and so young. And then that I just went right, right into it. So my, my education was the actual business itself. Um, but I've always thought if I get to the certain point where I have the time and energy, I'd love to, to go back and finish. I got to two years. Uh, I'd love to finish if, if it makes sense. And if I have time, do something there. Um, and that would literally just be for the fun of it. There'd be no, no career reason, or it would just be for the, for the enjoyment and for the fun of it and to continue to learn and expand. Um, that would be one thing. The other thing, um, is I just, I'm, through through business, through running businesses and having to deal with the government over and over again, um, I am increasingly interested in politics, and so that's an area that I, oh boy. I'm sort of dabbling in here. I know, I know. Mayor but, Tim, but here's why I'm. What's that? that Ma- Mayor maybe Tim. Just, <laughs> maybe maybe just city council, maybe just something simple or fun like that, or or whatever. But but it's it's a little bit. It, it almost doesn't make any kind of sense whatsoever. See, I'm more interested in local politics because that's where it actually affects me. Um, like national politics to me is just a big joke. But, um, but you know, like locally, for example, they're fighting over whether a gas station should be put in near my house or not. And, uh, and I'm just like, when I hear people talk about it, it's just, it's all so stupid. And then when I see how, um, I guess how decisions are made, it's, it's also stupid. So it's like, man, <laughs> like the people that actually get involved are not critical thinkers. Mm-hmm. And so you just think, gosh, I bet, I bet just like one person could make a major difference on a local level. Cause you just have a lot of people that get in there and say, I don't want that. It wouldn't be pretty. And, and it's like, they just don't understand economics enough to understand that, adding that one more gas station. They're already getting gas every day. So it's not like I live in a neighborhood where everyone's driving electric cars. Right. You would save money and and you're fighting it because you're talking about what it would look like. 
and the, the liquor store is already there and it had pumps in the past. So it's nothing like it's nothing's being built. It's just revitalizing the, like the equipment that, you know, whatever the tanks that are left and then, and then the, the big giant ugly parking lot that's already there. So it would just be adding something to that. And now we would save money because there's more competition and gas stations fighting each other. And this one's closer to our house. But anyways, it's, Stuff like that is interesting to me because, um, again, it involves critical thinking and, and trying to win, right, trying to win an argument with someone, or maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but trying to woo people um, intellectually is so exciting to me. So, because that's what I've been doing. I've been doing that, like, I would go to these, you know, conferences and I would present you know, the, the next batch of releases and I'm trying to get people excited and passionate about something that we're working on. And then if they do, then they run and they, if they're, if they're, um, salespeople for a distributor, then they're running to the, to the music stores and then they're getting all mm-hmm. those people excited and so on. And so it's kind of the same thing. Um, cause people come up with, well, why would we, you know, sell this record over this one? Because they're basically the same. And it's like, no, they're not. And here's why this rapper is better. And here's why it's better. And, and so on. So, I love that. And I don't, I'm again, I'm not saying those are just the areas that are missing from my LinkedIn yeah, profile, yeah. but I don't know that they'll get added or not. Well, two things. One, if you become a politician, they might not let you wear your hat, but I mean, you could be the first guy to, to do it. And two, from what it sounds like you're saying is if you drop out of college and don't complete college to become a musician, your life will be fine. yeah i honestly um i think that has to do with perspective more than anything and is the question that everybody gets so in your vast experience in the music industry what would you say is the key for the survival of the artist in 2018 so um like i was just saying perspective um every single the, the, the difference between the guy who made it and the guy who didn't make it is not skill. It should be, but it isn't. It's the guy who, when things were, you know, going down the tubes or whatever, or, or when he was just getting started, he was willing to work his butt off and um, support himself or his family or whatever, uh, however he could, whether he was, you know, selling candy or, you know, whatever you needed to do, like, to get it done so if you if you are like no I, I'm an amazing rapper or singer I don't I shouldn't work at 7-Eleven um, because I'm too good for that then well there you go you're you're not going to get very far even if you really are that good um, but also there's a lot of people who are really good there just is mm-hmm. and I think that everyone thinks that they somehow have the gift that no one else has and that, that that alone is the thing that's going to make them rise to the top. And it's, it's really not. It's going to be perspective and work ethic, I think, are the two main ingredients. And, and we see it over and over again. Like, the people who make it are the people who work the hardest, not the people who sing the best. Yeah, or, yeah. I mean, you know, once in a while, yeah, we'll get someone up there where we're like, well, they actually are really good. And that's, you know, great. But, but somebody behind them was that person. So if, it, if we're talking, you know, Beyonce or whatever... It's her dad. Her dad was insane and really good at business and just 
push like no one else. And again, if we're talking Michael Jackson, it was his dad. Yeah. Um, and, and so on. And so somebody down the road has that crazy, just outer, like, like outer earthly, like just insane perspective that allows them to get up and do things that no one else is willing to do. Um, even when the rest of the world is sitting there calculating it out, thinking this doesn't make sense. They're the ones that say, nope, just wait. And that's it. Bam. Tim Trudeau, you have survived the gauntlet of the Survival of the Artist podcast, episode 10. You you dropped you dropped a lot of knowledge and wisdom for someone who has seen and done it all thus far. Um so I mean I mean how do you feel that you made it? Well, now I'm like I feel like I'm done with the whole music business and I need to move on to the next thing now. It's it's time to be the politician. This, this, was, <laughs> this was the this this was the pinnacle. Like this was it. This this was uh this was like the eulogy for your music career. You had to speak about your entire career and then send it out. Yeah, I mean, I've been waiting on it because you you hit me up before you started the podcast, and I thought I was going to be get to be the first one, and and so I thought this is great. I'm going to get to retire, but then I had to wait for several more months, and I've just kind of been twiddling my thumbs. So you, now it's like as soon as I hang up, it's like I'm out. Like I'm actually going to go home and just lay in bed. You you actually you you actually were twiddling your thumbs for a few years because you transcended podcasts. Before I did this podcast, I did a podcast with my band, and that was the one I wanted to try to get you on. Um, but that podcast just didn't work out because having three people trying to do anything at any given time for an interview of someone who they 95% of the time did not do any research on just was not was not working for me. So I, I went solo. I became a solo podcast artist. Um, so I... Uh... I understand that too well, unfortunately, what you just described. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you do. But you, you got on, I got you to the, the pinnacle episode of number 10, which means I didn't give up, you know, before 10, which normally happens for a lot of people. Like, I've invested this much time into it. So, and I know you're... It might actually be a real podcast now. I think if, as soon as you hit 10, I think, you know, before that, it's just like, yeah, well, we'll see. I think yeah. as soon as you hit 10, it's like, this is actually a podcast. Yeah, like, now I have to get artwork, like, for real, which, you know, that that's a whole thing itself. But, uh, anyway, that that's it, Tim. Thanks for thanks for joining the podcast. I hope everybody listening um, soaked in his his Timness of wisdom. Um, so, where, where, <laughs> where, where can people find you or follow you? Hit them with a link or two. Uh, they can find me at a taco shop in San Diego, or I'm also on all social media at Rock Domes, R-O-C-D-O-M-V. And there you go. And you can follow me on Twitter at Justin Sarachik. That's it. You, you probably won't figure out how to spell it. So the last name is S-A-R-A-C-H-I-K. And you can find me on Twitter. And you can find I thought me- it was... Go ahead. I thought it was Sarachik. Sarah yeah, that, I mean that's that's what I'm feeling fancy, but if if you follow okay. Tim and I on Twitter, you can see us throw random gifts at each other and be super sarcastic, and it'll be a good time for everybody. Um, but 
but that's it man thank you so much for your time really appreciate it and um i will talk to you later all right good luck <laughs> good luck and god bless <laughs> and god bless these united states